Today, Palm Sunday, begins uh, probably the most sacred time of the year for Christians who are from liturgical churches. And the services that we're going to celebrate are very, very old. Uh, We get this uh, Palm Sunday liturgy from somebody I've mentioned before in my sermons, a woman named Egeria, who was a pilgrim from Spain. Uh, Some believe she was a member of a religious community. Some believe she was just a a well-to-do woman who could afford to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And on her trip, she kept a diary. And in the diary, she meticulously recorded everything that she experienced. And for us, most particularly, she recorded in great detail what the liturgy was like in Jerusalem. And so the material that's in our Book of Common Prayer, or some of it for Holy Week, uh, comes directly from what Egeria saw in about the 6th century uh, in Jerusalem with regard to the liturgy. Uh, It's always difficult to preach on the great days because, for me, the liturgy is self-explanatory. And uh, the idea of preaching about it is uh, somewhat uh, daunting. But what I want to say is just to remind us of a few things about what we're about to do and some historical things about the origin of the liturgy. Remember, Episcopalians have a, a Latin maxim that they have used for a long time called lex arendi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, or what we pray, we believe. That quote, by the way, came, file this on ice and amaze your friends. Prosper of Aquitaine in the 5th century. That, that's where it came from. So we believe that uh, if you were to say to if somebody were to say, well, what do you believe as Episcopalians? It would not be glib or flippant to say to them, come to the liturgy and see what we do. And you'll have some idea of what it is that we believe. In the old liturgy, prior to the present prayer book, we had two separate Sundays uh, where what we do this Sunday was split. One was called Palm Sunday, where we celebrate the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem by Jesus. And the other was called Passion Sunday where we read the Passion and we reflect on Jesus' Passion. At uh, Episcopalian 101, uh, someone asked, uh, what does Passion mean? Passion means suffering, passio in Latin. So the Passion of Jesus is his suffering. And Christians, over time, as they began to wrestle with both the crucifixion and the resurrection, we're trying to figure out how we understand suffering is redemptive. And that conversation continues to go on with Christian people, with people who aren't Christian but are trying to make sense of why there is suffering. And is there redemptive suffering and suffering that isn't redemptive? And how do we make sense uh, out of those things? So in one sense, the splitting of those things, we've lived with this now for over 40 years, it may have been better to do it more discreetly because there's a sense of separation. John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg in their book, The Last Week, talk about two 
uh, entrances into Jerusalem. That is to say, two processions. The first one was the Savior coming in on a donkey with his disciples and followers through one gate. And through the other gate, because it was near Passover, Pilate had sent for uh, the Roman army coming in another way. And you have the convergence of these two things which are going to have enormous consequences for how we understand the history of what it was that occurred. But the whole idea of there being, it sounds when we read this now, as though, well, Jesus came in, then he got arrested, and then this is what happened. But there was some time uh, between these things, maybe at least a week anyway, and maybe a little longer. So uh, symbolically, uh, it needs to have some kind of an explanation. All four Gospels have a passion narrative. In fact, most New Testament scholars believe that the first piece of written material in the Gospels is about the passion. And all of the other stuff is added on, not just to fill up space, but to say this passion is very difficult to understand or make sense of. And one of the ways that we believe we can do that is to understand the totality of the mystery of the ministry, the words and the works of Jesus. And when we do that, we begin to see who he was and what he did in depth. We understand now, oh, this is now two and two being put together. And it represents some species of fulfillment as they also begin to reflect that those Jews who know about their own history, that what Jesus seems to be doing is fulfilling what we have understood is going to happen as the Messiah approaches. And why, the, why this is important. Reginald Fuller, one of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, uh, said, each passion has its particular timber and theological emphasis. Matthew's passion narrative brings out the royalty of Christ in a paradoxical sense in that this royalty manifests itself precisely in humiliation. The royalty is seen in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The humiliation in the scene between Jesus and Pilate the sense of mocking by the Roman soldiers in the title on the cross and in the mockery by the bystanders. But the location for the greatest humiliation is emphasized by the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scholars say that these words are have a terrific claim to be the words of Jesus. Luke and John soften this. They don't say that. They don't reflect uh, to people uh, Jesus' utter despair at feeling now completely alienated and abandoned. And I think it has something to do also with reminding us that uh, in the, on the first Sunday in Lent, we read about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, in the desert. 
and he is tempted and appears now to uh, conquer these temptations. But if you read the Gospels, you discover that these temptations continue to come up for him. And this is the biggest one of all. It's a lot stronger to read this than it is in Luke, for example, where it says, uh, it is finished, or into your hands I commend my spirit. And probably those changes were made because of the audience. I say this over and over again. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, and they don't agree with one another, and it's okay. It's okay. There's a reason for that. And so, as Reginald Fuller says, each one has its own timber. You know, like a violin sounds different than a trumpet. They have a different timber. And so the books of the, of the New Testament are like that when we talk uh, about that kind of thing. Luke Timothy Johnson, who is a, a New Testament scholar, somewhat, somewhat famous in those circles, says, Just as the cross confounded ancient Jews and Greeks by contradicting the conventional wisdom about God, so does it remain an obstinate challenge to every age that seeks to identify God's rule with human comfort. And that's what I think most of us would prefer. Though sometimes we kind of go off the rails with this. About uh, a number of years ago now, there was a movie that was produced by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. There's not one historical thing in the movie The Passion of the Christ. There's no gospel account of any of the things that you see on film about what was done to Jesus. Those things that Mel Gibson put in that movie were from the fevered imagination of a German nun by the name of Anne Catherine Emmerich who lived at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. And she wrote a book about her visions, and she was looking at Jesus' arrest, trial, humiliation, and crucifixion. And all those gory details that she added were from her vision. Mel Gibson is particularly attached to that kind of piety because his father and he belong to a Roman Catholic breakaway sect called the Sede Vaticanus. And among other things, they believed that the Holocaust never existed. So, are you going to rely on the Gospels, or are you going to rely on the movie The Passion of the Christ? You know, it's hard for us to, to uh, uh, not avoid that temptation, because it's, for some, so compelling. Part of the other reason it's not easy to talk about this is because you and I live in the age of the quick fix. Most of us want symptom relief. And religion, psychotherapy, politics, medicine, any of the systems of salvation that are part of contemporary life seem to focus on the importance of symptom relief. I don't know about you, but when I have a serious physical problem that needs medical attention, I almost would say to my doctor, I'm going down to the bank now and I'm taking all my money out and I'm going to give it to you and I want you to fix me now. <laughs> fix me. Right? 
I've spent a great deal of my own life trying to avoid suffering. Lots of people do, you know. But what you discover is that you can't go under it, you can't go around it, you can't go over it. You've got to go through it. And somehow in that process is a deeper and fuller understanding of God's redemptive purpose. And occasions like this uh, point Christians to that reality and that knowledge. As we begin this solemn and sacred time, remember that the passion of Christ overlays all of our individual passions and that what Jesus was by nature, we become through adoption and grace, meaning that as we live through our own personal trials, God is with us no matter what. Amen.